You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 34 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Ian Howe. So for this episode of Our Ruined Lives, we are interviewing Mr. Simon Radchenko. Simon is a Ukrainian archaeologist pursuing his PhD in archaeology at the University of Turin in Italy. And most importantly, Simon is the reason that uh, I had such a wonderful experience in Ukraine during the pre-COVID summer of 2019. Simon, how are you? you doing this glorious Saturday morning for us and afternoon for you in Italy? Well, I'm great. Thank you. And thanks for having me, gentlemen. Yeah, dude. Been very excited to have you on for for a while now, and I'm I'm glad we uh, finally had the opportunity. Yeah, that's great. I really appreciate it. And I really wanted to be a part of Life in Ruin podcast as a guest for a while. Well, we're super excited to have you on. If you don't mind starting off, could you explain your first response to Carlton? Like to first meeting him, what was your first reaction? I would love to know that. Well, what I can recall that we all at this Ukrainian site in Zavada, we thought that it will be much more complicated to find the, I don't know, mutual understanding because we thought that it is more or less different kind of tradition. And then when Carlton arrived, we asked him like, what's your habitation during the excavation procedure? How, uh, I don't know, what drinks uh, do you drink? What's the evening in archaeological expedition in USA looks like? And then we realized it's just all the same. It's all the same, except we did the Neolithic archaeology with Shaolin and Carlton asked to wear my travels. That's it. <laughs> yeah it was I, I remember the first time i met you was at that cafe after i got off the bus and i was with kudra and anton and you, you sat down with us and kudra's like oh he speaks english and i was like oh you do and you're like yeah yeah, yeah not very well and you kind of like waved me off and you kept talking i was like oh, okay sweet and it turned out you're the one of the people at the site that do english the most and yeah, I think that first night people were asking like, yeah, well, you know, it might be different here uh, in Ukraine, but, you know, af- after work, we like we like to drink a lot and we like to go hang out by the campfire. And I'm like, yeah, sweet. That's what we do in the U.S. too. So and that's obviously the best option to, yeah, for mutual collaboration, mutual understanding. It's drinking and camping that you don't need mess more. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, just just real quick, Simon, could you give us a brief the background about yourself, where, you, where you've gone to school, and what got you into archaeology in the first place? Well, um, I remember that my first archaeological season was, uh, I guess, 2006, so I was 11. And that was because my parents decided they, they want to get rid of me during summer. So they found the organization in Ukraine that provides the kids possibility with a possibility to excavate and to uh, have an archaeological experience so i go there for a week or two and it was early medieval site i was too young so i was allowed just to throw a soil out of excavation trench and then check if there's something little in the soil that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah it was so exciting however I really liked it and I wanted to go the next year and the year after that. And it was like the tradition that every year I'm coming there for more and more time. And well, that's how I more or less grew up in this situations. 
though I switched off to prehistory quite soon after that. And I never graduated as an archaeologist. Uh, when I finished the high school, I thought about that, but my uh, boss, Oleg, uh, he advised me to avoid archaeology as a profession, uh, which is not really a bad advice if we're talking about Ukraine. So, yeah, I <laughs> I started to work, uh, to, to study as GIS expert, and then just discovered that GIS is quite needed in Ukrainian archaeology and in archaeology in general. So I just started to apply this geoinformatics system for the provision of archaeology and mastered like this. That's the story. And then more and more archaeology. Very cool. Yeah, and I, I got advised very early um, on as well to, if you want to make money, don't go into archaeology. <laughs> yeah, but having a skill like GIS is is a way to make things work. And how did you apply GIS to some of the sites you were working on? Well, when I worked on my master, I sort of created 3D database for all that had been excavated on the Neolithic site on Kamina Zavala. Uh, this is BK1. And then provided the boss with kind of extrapolation of shapes and contours and sedimentation history of the site. And then we started to create some kind of concept of stratigraphic units for this site. So moved from the observation in the field to some extrapolation procedures from the computer. Then I sort of discovered uh, the stratigraphic points and stratigraphic interrelations between different objects on numerous sites for Ukrainian prehistory is one, two, three, maybe five of them already. And there's every time something new. That's it. And in Ukraine, it's quite easy to be a geographic specialist in archaeology because I don't think we even have five of them, at least for prehistorical archaeology. So the field oh is gosh. quite empty. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's something I picked up while I was there was that like Ukrainian archaeology, I want to consider it the wild, wild west. But in terms of like, it's just a really open field for people that if you have a specialization to really carve a niche for yourself. And I think you've you've found that, Simona, with, with GIS especially. Yeah, I heard it not only from archaeologists, just that Ukraine is an open field and you have really prospects here if you have some fresh ideas. And yeah, I feel it because there's no GS in Ukrainian archaeology. Well, now it's much better than, uh, I guess, seven or eight years ago, but still. And uh, there's no photogrammetry for Ukrainian archaeology except three, four cases. So yeah, the field is so clear. I can do whatever I want and it will be unique. Do you have space for a Westerner with questionable morals? Sorry? (laughs) (laughs) I was making fun of myself and offering myself as a GIS specialist out here with questionable moral compass. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you can try to join us and we'll see what we can do with that. (laughs) Awesome. So I guess it kind of blows my mind that you were... And I think Carlton had mentioned this before, that archaeology and history is kind of a community activity, right? So you started very, very young in archaeology. Is that is that pretty common? 
Well, in Ukraine, it's much more common than all around the world because because it's Ukraine. Because every archaeologist, I mean research fellow, he need to invent something cool to produce uh, the resource to excavate. So usually we don't have financial support, we don't have any team, we don't we have nothing. And that's the idea my uh, chief Oleg decided to uh, create. Uh, he just opened the NGO and invited kids to excavate. That's the way to create a team. And there's a lot of teams like that in Ukraine now. I guess I can name then it's it's a lot for Ukraine that just works because they have kids. So yeah, it's common. Yeah. So NGO that stands for non-government organization, right? So it's like a like a public organization. Yeah, that's the kind of public body that focuses on uh, archaeological excavation. That's it. And the one that Oleg that, that we've brought up several times, that's he works at uh, in Kordica. He has his PhD, and uh, is he in charge of the new archaeological school? Yeah, uh, since 2002, so since the very beginning of neurological school. Okay, and and we'll circle back to that towards our final segment about Nosh. So. You know, there's there's a couple differences that I picked up. I, I love the fact that you guys talk about archaeological excavations. You call them expeditions, like we're going on expedition. <laughs> I think that's just a fun way to think about it. But also in Ukraine, is archaeology a subfield of anthropology or is it housed within history? Well, there is a mutual a common phrase in Ukraine that archaeology, and uh, not in Ukraine, it's in post-Soviet space in general, that archaeology is a history armed with a shovel. <laughs> so, ar- archaeology is neither anthropology or history for us, it's just a method to discover things. And that's it. And yeah, it's much more historical than anthropological. If you want to be an archaeologist in Ukraine, you need to know the history of more or less everything. So you're in this high school frame. And there's just a couple of anthropological disciplines. And when we are talking about anthropology in post-Soviet Union, we mean just physical anthropology. Cultural anthropology is something that barely exists for archaeology in Ukraine, in fact. So when you go to school for archaeology, like you specifically enroll in archaeology as your major, there's no other, like you don't go for history? No. Uh, you, when you want to be an archaeologist, you enroll in as a historian. And then after two, one or two years, you uh, dis- choose a division, that kind of faculty to become an archaeologist. That's it. We don't have special uh, program for archaeologists. So you just use archaeology as the data mining tool or like the the way to remove information from the ground, essentially? Mm, well, no, it's still a discipline, but it works rather uh, like a tool, toolkit of methods. And toolkit of methods we are approaching from the historical side, like, like this. That's not an anthropological discipline yet however there are some shift in this direction for now it's a little bit better than it was before gotcha and is it true that if, if you are an undergraduate or at university in history part of your your degree is you have to take part in an archaeological expedition yeah after your first year every student obliged to participate in archaeological excavation 
And usually those who want to become an archaeologist, they use some tricks to participate after the second or third year, though they are officially obliged to also participate in the museum, the work in the museum, the work in on some ethnographical expeditions. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, I, I like that. I feel like that's similar to what we do in, uh, at least at the University of Wyoming, where you're you're forced to interact with all these different subfields, right? I think we're all, we're not like instructed to do museum stuff, but we're encouraged to do. So I, I like that you guys are encouraged to do a bunch of different types of history, as you would call it there. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool because archaeology is so vast, really. And we constantly seen it when we are interacting with students that our kids, our high school students, they are much better in field archaeology than students from universities because they just don't have this experience. And you need to obtain a lot of different experiences to be a good archaeologist. And there's just not enough time for that. So it's quite complicated. At least it's good we have the possibility to obtain this experience. Yeah. So how did you end up at the University of Turin in Italy pursuing your PhD? Well, they have a project found, uh, founded by um, Maria Curie Coffond, and that's the place for me to thank the Tech for Culture PhD school for letting me introduce my study. So, yeah, I won a project of, as an archaeologist from Ukraine for photographical study of portable rock art instances from one of Ukrainian sites. And that's it. I have three years to provide a kind of PhD series and photogrammatical study for this stuff. So that's not really an archaeology, it's rather rock art research through the photogrammatical methods. Very cool. Are you trying to learn Italian as as part of this as well? Well, I started, but then COVID just uh, ruined that because I spent more than half of the of last year in Kyiv. And I just wasn't in Italy long enough to do it. Yeah, because you, you just started your PhD program, right? And then uh, COVID hit pretty soon after. Yeah, I started in November and at February it was already closed and blocked. So I spent the spring, summer and part of autumn in Ukraine. At least I had an excavation season. I think it's interesting that you don't consider like rock art research as part of archaeology because here in the States, like rock art research is firmly cemented in the archaeological discipline and especially with like photogrammetry well that's not like i consider it like this but there's definitely a bunch of organizations that are focused on rock art not on archaeology and i have an experience of ukrainian archaeologists who have tried to interpret rock art in ukraine and usually this is a mess. <laughs> yeah, it should be reconsidered so tremendously. It's easier to think that rock art is something quite special and much more complicated in terms of not screwing up. <laughs> it's much easier to mistake to be mistaken than in regular archaeology. In fact, there's a there's a lot of interpretation that's going on, and and you can definitely mess that up. Yeah, and. As soon as you get closer to the semantic of rock art instances, it's horrible. It's like you're on the battlefield and you are ready that every single rock art researcher will tell you, you're an idiot. <laughs> That's quite horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and 
on that note, we're going to rock ourselves right out of this first segment and we'll catch you on the next one. Welcome back to segment two of this episode of Life in Ruins podcast. We're back with Simone, who's in the Ukraine. And I am curious to know, you know, with the, the history of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, like what's the history of archaeology in the Ukraine in, in regards to the Soviet Union and like how that currently stands in Ukraine right now? Well, the beginning is pretty much as everywhere. So there's collections and we started uh, to investigate the data from archaeological point of view just recently, even more recently than in Europe. It's like the end of 18th century. And then uh, while there were huge discussions concerning processual and post-processual archaeology all around the world, uh, we just stuck with cultural historical approach. And that's it. That's the, the first, I guess, branch of my, my speech here. And the second one that obviously an archaeology was really obsessed with ideological questions just because you need to do something that Soviet Union asks you to do. So it was quite important to show that, for example, politic peoples were close to socialism and to the ideas of Marxism. And it is really necessary to end up any politic paper with this message. That's it. And so we did not have really opportunity to to develop an archaeological knowledge uh, in the same frame as all around the world. And we're still pretty much cultural historical in this case, in the first place. There were even the trend at the very end of last century, even at the beginning of this one, that if you're applying for PhD, to, to be a PhD, applying for the thesis, you need to discover an archaeological culture. It's more or less obligatory, compulsory. So, and yeah, and if you're failed, you're not a PhD. That's a lot of pressure. So I can imagine there's a lot of conflation of the archaeological record with a lot of these cultures that PhDs have found through time. Yeah, there is a guy, uh, Valentin Danilenko, uh, who he died, I guess, in the 80s of last century. So he discovered more than uh, 20 archaeological cultures. And some of them were uh, closed after his death. After a long research, guys decided that this culture actually did not exist. And this is just the mess. And one more thing about post-Soviet archaeology, that it's really, I, I'm not sure if in USA it's like that or not, but uh, here in Ukraine, we are really obsessed with hierarchy. And obviously, uh, those guys who were archaeologists before and then died, they are much better than we are now. So it is really hard to argue with them because they are classics and we are not. So you have the results of this is that you have basically these little boxes that are drawn around in time and space of cultures, as you are calling them. And then you can't break through and criticize these cultures because there's this hierarchy out there <laughs> that doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for change in the archaeology of Ukraine at this point. Well, once more, it becomes better and better. And now it's more or less okay, because we have an opportunity to publish 
everything we want and we have an opportunity to publish abroad it is quite important and this is what matters but if soviet union existed now yeah it was actually what you're saying it would be okay good that's that's exciting to hear that it's moving towards something that that can produce really good information good good data good good studies yeah, yeah i guess i'm sound like everything is horrible in ukraine but that's not true we are really getting better and better. <laughs> yeah, man, that's good to hear. Something that I was shocked to learn out in Ukraine, Ukraine is either the, the largest or second largest country in Europe by landmass. How many professional archaeologists are there in Ukraine? Yeah, it's the largest in Europe. So we have uh, 6,100 uh, square kilometers and uh, officially we have 300 archaeologists. Yeah, so Ukraine is the largest in European country. It's like uh, 600,000 square kilometers. And we have just uh, 300 archaeologists for that space. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's just the official stats. I'm not sure it's true. The point is a lot of archaeologists who would like to perform an archaeology in Ukraine just don't have an opportunity because we don't have financial resources. We don't. We have nothing for that. And government usually does not provide any support to archaeological excavations and we don't have really strict law concerning rescue archaeology so even if we had thousands and thousands of archaeologists we still would have maybe 200 of excavation permits per year so if my if my math is correct i think that is one archaeologist per 2000 square kilometers <laughs> Yeah. For our American listeners, Ukraine is the same size as Nebraska, Kansas, and uh, Missouri combined. So <laughs> 300 archaeological permits for that area of the central United States. Wow, that's that's amazing. But I guess like we've mentioned earlier, it's it's an opportunity for for folks to study then, right? There's a lot of potential in, in Ukraine right now. Yeah, and you can be sure that you will still have an exciting site because there's a lot of exciting sites. And you just can go and pick up any. Nobody is interested. <laughs> when we were in Zavalia, someone found, I mean, we just call them Venus figurines. That's just what we referred anything with that female body. And I've, I've never seen one in person. I was really excited. I was like, oh, it's a Venus figurine. And you guys are like, no, Carlton, you idiot. It's not a Venus figurine. It's a, <laughs> a specific form of this. And I was like, oh. But in terms of just that first sight in Zavalia, working at that LBK site, some of the coolest stuff I've ever seen, and then going to Korditsa Island and working on that Bronze Age site, that was just, it, it, like that archaeological record out there is just so fascinating to me. And it's just so rich. I mean, that LBK site in Zavalia was like 5,000, 6,000 BC. So like 8,000 years old, 9,000 years old. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Just so cool. Yeah, and we did it in strange way and i really think that if we'll continue with zavada there'll be much more interesting stuff in fact e even that part of what you saw there in zavada it was not the most exciting part because uh, what we excavated previously uh, to be honest is much more intensive and much richer than what we had here so I hear what you're saying is that Carlton is a bad omen. Uh, well, no, <laughs> <laughs> no way, because everything was perfect on Hurtis Island. So Carlton is definitely a good omen. <laughs> First, I'm hearing that. 
Well, yeah, and I'm excited to return. Maybe I can bring my good omenness, omenness back. Doubt it. Yeah, I know. Probably. I'm just, you know. No, it's the good omenness. It's not the traveling thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what other sites have you have you worked on, Simone, in, in Ukraine? Well, that's two you visited. What the one is Zavale is Neolithic one, and then the early bronzation on Hortis Island. I'm quite excited to work on Kambianamohila. This is rock art site I have PhDs about, and there's a huge multilateral settlement nearby. It's like at least five or six uh, stratigraphic layers on the place we have excavated since the early Mesolithic to Neolithic ones. And uh, another part nearby with Analytic uh, and then Iron Age. So it's like 8,000 years of uh, living history nearby the rock art site. It's so exciting. And then, yeah, I try to create some kind of archaeological diversity to my team. So we are participating constantly some Iron Age Scythian hill forts and uh, burial sites and then participate other places and even do some photogrammetry for architecture, not just for archaeology, to see more of Ukrainian archaeology. So I definitely have read that there's a lot of mammoth kill sites in Ukraine. I mean, there's just a lot of mammoths that get found there too. Like, have you, have you got to work on any of those or do you know much about those? Well, yeah, indeed, we have a lot of uh, upper Paleolithic sites and mammoth bone build dwellings. Yeah. And uh, you def- probably know the bone drum set from mammoth bones from Ukraine, from upper Paleolithic sites. We have the one that f- has been found in the mammoth uh, bone build dwell. And it is kind of drum set covered with red ochre. And there's a lot of something that has been used probably as a musical instrument. But I never worked there. The only Paleolithic site I visited was in the depths of Carpathian Mountains. And there were no bones at all. It's just a few stones that can presumably be processed. And I'm even not sure that they was processed. Yeah. So, no, I'm not Paleolithic guy. Okay. Are there a lot of Paleolithic archaeologists in Ukraine? I know there's like a short amount of archaeologists in Ukraine, but is the majority of them Paleolithic or are they more Neolithic focused or is it more historic? I guess it's more or less equal, but now Paleolithic part is uh, really good because we are rich of interesting Paleolithic materials and current head of Institute of Archaeology of Ukraine is Paleolithic guy. And yeah, he's great. So he focuses on Paleolithic and every Paleolithic archaeologist in Ukraine is in good condition. Okay. Excellent. I should let Stefan know that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I also want to make a comment that they recently found that Keith Richards was the person who was playing with that drum set. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We spent a lot talking about Ukraine here, but is you know, we talked briefly in the first segment about some of my differences or American differences to Ukraine, but how is Ukrainian archaeology different, if at all, from other European schools of archaeology? Well, that's not a point of schools. In fact, that's the point of sedimentation process. Because in Ukraine, we have a really intensive sedimentation process, and that's the 
archaeological problem. Because, for example, for LBK, which is uh, 5,000 years BC, in Europe, in Poland, or in Germany, you can use aerial data to search for the pits of LBK. You can really find LBK objects by non-destructive means. In Ukraine, even if you created perfect profile or perfect cleaning, you can't be sure that you really see the object because uh, a lot of sediment and uh, the color of the sediment is pretty much the same as the filling of the pit. So you can just go and say, well, I'm, I know what's happening. And that means that we need to excavate much deeper and much slower and much more accurate. So when an elite archaeologist from Europe perform shoveling for 500 square meters, we spend in the five years for traveling 30 meters. That's it. And we still can't be sure that we know the right contours. That's why this GIS I perform is effective, because that's usually the only option to understand what the objects really is, really are. So you have to take that next step and really do the analyzing of where these artifacts, things come from in space to to really understand, whereas in other places in Europe, you're just looking at the surface manifestations and you get enough information. So Ukraine, you just you just have to dig almost exclusively. Yeah, that's it. We really, it's better to provide the total 3D fixation for every every single pot shirt. In this case, we can do something. And in Europe, yeah, it's enough just to excavate. So it's really a problem to submit a paper in European Journal because when we are speaking of, okay, it's been five years and we excavated a part of a pit. They ask us, so where's the rest of the house? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I got a quarter of it. That's 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 what we're going off. Of. Yeah. And it was five years, guys. You need to thank us for that. That's the best we can do. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, thinking about that LBK site. So that's that's run by uh, Mace, who is a PhD from Poland. So he's he's like the site supervisor, but it's a, it's a Ukrainian team. Is that common in Ukrainian archaeology for archaeologists from other nationalities to fund projects and use Ukrainian teams? Yeah, that's the kind of, I don't know, colonial international collaboration because they uh, know that our materials are good. And so European archaeologists can win the project and apply for an excavation in Ukraine. But to excavate in Ukraine, you need to be Ukrainian officially, I mean, to get the excavation permit. So... This archaeologist from Poland uh, or any other country can just arrive, find the guy in Ukraine that interested in the same scene and share uh, the project money. However, obviously, this is usually more the use of a Ukrainian team than the full-scale international collaboration. It's like Civ Five. <laughs> Yeah, I, and before we break, I remember um, when I did when I did show up, people were very confused that I was just there to work, not to run a project or anything. I was there just to be a shovel bomb, and people were kind of, I want to say, weirded out by that, but definitely skeptical. They're probably happy too. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <Just> joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. We were like, okay, we just here because we like it, but what this guy 
to want to do it. I, I, we don't know. And then it, it appears that Carlton get up early to go work, and even in the strongest heat, he still stays to work with us and even pays money for that. <laughs> that was so strange, but that was great. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. I actually paid to work there. <laughs> so. Americans spend money on weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we're going to close out this segment. We'll be back with segment three with Simone, and we're going to talk about some international collaboration in Ukraine. So uh, stand by and enjoy these messages by our sponsors and overlords. Welcome back to episode 34 of A Life in Ruins podcast. We're talking with Simone, and we finished the last section of the conversation kind of talking about different methods and and how you excavate in, in, in different areas. And we wanted to talk, at least in this in this section, about you know collaboration and who you work for in general. So do you see Ukraine as a place where you need or you would prefer to have international collaboration? Yeah, I definitely am. Because, well, it's impossible to work now without it, I guess. And again, archaeology is a great example because you need to know so much of everything. And we don't have enough resources and capacities and labs. We have nothing to provide the high level of archaeological research. So we really need an international collaboration. Besides well, I'm not sure that we really feel this collaboration like international now, because before COVID summer, we didn't really feel the borderlines. And so there's just a collaboration of different specialists with different opportunities. And that's that's great. We don't, don't need to think that this is something international. This is just the human beings that can perform better together. Oh, that's awesome. That's cool to think of it like that, especially with everything, you know, in Europe being monumentally closer than that. I mean, it's I hope in the future we can think of that like that in the U.S., but there's definitely a hard line between Canada, Mexico yeah, <laughs> and the U.S. here where where you feel like it's international collaboration, even though it's, you know, we're sharing borders at this point. Yeah, that's true. And it's so strange now with this situation. So, yeah. We'll see what future brings us. That's car. Yeah, you, you used a term earlier. You called it colonial collaboration. That where other archaeologists, one or, or two, come to Ukraine, use Ukrainian archaeologists, and pay Ukrainian archaeologists. Is that a typical form of collaboration? Yeah, but well, it all depends on the European partner. If he is a great guy and he is cool and he wants to provide the equal research then it works great. But if he just wants to take an advantage from the process, that's a different scene. And unfortunately, in Ukraine, we rarely have, archaeologists in Ukraine rarely have enough reputation to want the project by themselves. I guess I can name all of them. Again, I can use my fingers and I'll have a few more. <laughs> Very small amount. <laughs> yep, unfortunately. I remember speaking to one of those international archaeologists and just just talking with him about what he was doing in Ukraine. And he was like, well, why would I bring archaeologists from my country? I can pay a Ukrainian archaeologist for a day what students from my country would want an hour. I kind of picked up on that that financial background. Like it's just you get more bang for your buck hiring Ukrainian archaeologists. Well, you know, it's 
even more ridiculous because yeah if you're um, asking german students to help you for example you really need to pay them uh, as much as we've been paid for a working day like eight or nine hours of constant shoveling but me and my team who worked in zavala we got this salary and then spend it all to provide an excavation on Hortis Island. So we just worked then there to work more on our side, and that's it. <laughs> oh my that's, goodness. That's how it goes. <laughs> well, you know, you, you hope that these folks who get this money and they use it to, you know, eventually, you know, give back to the community or something like that. But it seems like there's the opportunity to take advantage of folks in different countries. And I, I feel like this is not uncommon for the rest of the world as well. Yeah, I guess that's true because there's a bunch of, I guess, archaeologically developed countries. Yeah. And a bunch of um, satellites. And obviously Ukraine is across, is in the group of satellites. <laughs> I like that. Archaeologically developed groups. That's, <laughs> that's painfully accurate. <laughs> So there's been civil unrest in Ukraine for like the past couple of years with Russian-backed nationalists. How has that affected Ukrainian archaeologists' ability to excavate in the eastern portions of Ukraine? Well, we just don't have a possibility to excavate there. There's, again, two branches of my answer. The first one, we just lost a part of control under our territories. And so the archaeological sites there are has been excavated by uh, Russian archaeologists, like in Crimea, or destroyed by the civils and just population of eastern regions of Crimea. However, there is a huge collaboration between the army of Ukraine and the archaeologists, because every uh, battle trench that army needs to excavate can possibly find some archaeological uh, site. And there are cases when archaeologists just excavated the burial sites on the front line because battle trench uh, just crossed the burials of early medieval age, for example. So these these Ukrainian soldiers are are digging these these trenches, World War One style, and they come across burials and they just called archaeologists to to excavate them. Yep, these cases I talked about is about guys who ended up with historical faculty. So they knew that this is something. And they just called their familiars and told, you can go there and take the site because it will be destroyed otherwise. And so archaeologists just came there to save the rescue the site. Were they getting shot at? Like, was it, I imagine it was dangerous. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm sure it was pretty dangerous. That's some real Indiana Jones level archaeology. Yeah. And I guess moving a little bit further away from this, earlier in the first segment, you talked about an NGO that you're a part of that Oleg started in, in the early 2000s. And it's called the uh, New Archaeological School. You know, you guys call it NOSH, which is the you know abbreviation of that in Russian. And so what is the New Archaeological School, Simon? Well, yeah, this is an NGO. Actually, this is a, a team of people who are interested in dissemination of cultural heritage and archaeological excavation. This means that our head, Oleg Tubolsev, and the guys who already grew up in this movement just work on archaeological sites together with kids from the team. And for now, we, for 
18 years, we have more than few hundred of kids who eager or were eager to work with us and an active team of like 50 people who are just interested to excavate anything everywhere and are happy to pay for that because they want to do an archaeology. And every uh, man from 11 years old can join us on the site. That's super cool. So they're just volunteering because they want to preserve the past in any form. Well, mainly they volunteering because they want to hang out with their friends. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, that's great, and that's great. So we we created the team, and this team is really eager to work and really eager to work together on this great topic of cultural heritage. And then we decided that uh, we wanted to provide some social media actions. Uh, to New York Ecological School uh, to show our work better. But Oleg don't have time for that, and I don't really have also. So uh, we just thought that kids can do this, and that's it. We just ask them if they will do it. So now we have website and Instagram and Facebook uh, running totally uh, on the efforts of our kids, and that's awesome. That's excellent. And you guys invited me to be a part of Nosh and you guys had me, you drafted it. You had me read out a document that you prepared. Do you, do you, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I, I know that moment. Before the record, uh, just uh, so looked a story in Life and Read podcast profile and there is uh, stories from that day when you're reading the document. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Is this when that person got stabbed? No, no. Oh, no. But that was a different. That was Simon who did it. That was Simon who, who, yeah, yeah. who, who stabbed Leonidas. Yeah, I'm responsible for sacrificial actions in New York Logical School. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Just the look of shock on my face because I had no clue what was going on. Yeah, I think I saw that from like Instagram or something and was like, what is going on? <laughs> There's like no context from Carlton. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, oh, that's another tradition like from the end of 19th century, I guess, in Ukraine, that every archaeologist, every archaeological student should be initiated to become part of archaeological community. So we have a stone of different tradition of for this initiation. Actually, uh, each uh, excavation team has its own tradition. And of course, as we excavate in prehistory, early Bronze Age site mainly, we do it in early Bronze Age manner with initiation, with challenges, and then with sacrificial actions. I remember once we excavated on Kamenamahila, this rock art site, and this is a popular place where uh, wedding, weddings come to make an images on the first day. Yeah, and then the uh, wedding uh, just married guys made a photo, and on the second stone, uh, 10 meters uh, away from them, I'm just stabbing another guy into stomach to produce new archaeological initiation. <laughs> <laughs> so these guys are taking what like you know wedding day photos and there's just simon just stabbing somebody in, on the on the background like all right i bet that was a day they definitely didn't forget yeah it, i guess it was it for them because there's something special 
It should be special. <laughs> well, I have, a, I have a couple wedding photos. I just got married that Carlton and David doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I got stabbed. <laughs> I look like one of the trolls from, from The Hobbit sitting in the background. A nice JC square. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So as we were talking about and rounding this back to the new archaeological school, right, that you that you guys have started this and you, you have a presence on Instagram and, and social media in general. And it's not only just in Russian or Ukrainian, but you also have English in your text that you've you've divided up, which which is admirable, right? Because you only have so many characters on Instagram. So the fact you guys are doing content in two to two or three languages, really, you know, two languages, I think that's just phenomenal. So how come you guys decided to add English to your posts? Well, basically, that was your advice. <laughs> in fact, you weren't, supposed, you weren't supposed to say that. <laughs> Yeah, and the reason behind that was, like, you, you remember that reason, right? Yeah, well, I just knew that we have some foreign audience, and uh, we will never grow up uh, more than two or three hundred of people in Ukraine who want to follow archaeological news. So we just focused on more diverse audience. That's it. Yeah, and now we create the short explanative to more or less everything we do in English as well as in Russian and trying to keep it up to standard. Well, I think that we are successful in that, in fact. Mm -hmm. I'd agree. And that's that's all really my advice is really just an extension of David's advice on, on social media practices and etiquette. Take out the grain of salt. <laughs> Right. And, you know, part part of those, which I totally forgot about, I don't know how I did, those archaeological initiation ceremonies, right, is that you get like an archaeology name as part of that. And what, what name did they give you, Simon? Well, I did it for several times. I mean, I have been initiated for several, several times because kids usually want to reinitiate me to participate in the procedure because I am kind of more experienced, so they want to do something to challenge me. And the last one was Bafus am Klavier, which in German means barefoot through the keyboard, because usually, yeah, I neglect the tradition to wear boots uh, during archaeological excavation. And uh, then I try to perform as keyboard player. That's it. Okay. <laughs> well, all right, man. So yeah, Simon, thank you so much for being on and taking time out of your Saturday to, to come join us here on a Life and Runs podcast. Is there anything you'd like for our audience to know about yourself or uh, the New Archaeological School? I guess I already told that that New Archaeological School is the best place in the world. And please join us or at least follow us in Instagram at New Archaeological School because we are trying to be great. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll have that link to their Instagram on the show notes for this. And you can see them periodically on our stories and everything like that. You know, like we said, thank you for joining us, Simone. And because this is a Life in Ruins podcast, I'm going to ask a question. So if you, if you were given the chance again, would you choose 
to live a life in ruins, would you choose to be an archaeologist? There's no way I can imagine another way of living. That's an excellent <laughs> answer. <laughs> yeah, that is. We just interviewed Simon Radchenko. You can find him on Instagram at new underscore archaeological underscore school and Facebook as new archaeological school, although that is in Russian. So we will have that on the show notes. So yeah, Simon, thank you very much for being with us today. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. I want to start the crappy joke segment by shouting out to my father, the Dean, who sent me a list of 78 favorite dad jokes. So these <laughs> are dad jokes dad from jokes. my father. <laughs> these are actual dad jokes. After an unsuccessful harvest, why did the farmer decide to try a career in music? Mm. I don't know. Because he had a ton of sick beats. Oh, God, that hurt. That that hurt. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> all right. And, all right, everybody. We'll see you next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.